but because we have a lot of visitors and uh, because we're trying to to see uh, or to hear Paul hear each chapter in light of the whole uh, I think it's helpful to step back for five minutes and remember where where we've been or things we've covered uh, to prevent misinterpretation um, it's just so easy to pull a chapter or a few verses and make them say so many different things but when you hear them within the bounds of the whole book the whole argument of the book uh, it narrows that interpretation it helps us to hear something um, that I think the author was trying to communicate to us so um, what we have up here I'll underline it so you can see it um, these first five things uh, Jesus Christ, Gospel, Prophets, Gentiles, Obedience of Faith. This shows up in the first few verses and the last few verses. So this is kind of the sandwich bread of, uh, of the sandwich of, um, of Romans. So when we read Romans uh, and we're hearing references to Jesus Christ, we're reminded that Christ isn't a last name, uh, but that Christ means Messiah or Anointed One. And so we are, um, we're reminded that He's the King. And so whatever this good news is, it has to do with Jesus as King. Uh, not only Savior, not only Forgiver, uh, but something about King of Israel. What was it that Israel was looking toward, and what is it that Jesus has accomplished? In line with that, the language of gospel also in that first century context uh, is not a, uh, a shorthand way of talking about forgiveness, although it includes forgiveness, but gospel in its first century context has to do uh, with God reigning, uh, and it's a way in the uh, kind of Greco-Roman world of saying a king has won a victory. So as we're reading Romans, we're thinking, uh, something about this good news, this gospel, has to do with God reigning more fully and with a victory that has been won. Uh, when uh, Paul makes reference to the prophets, it reminds us that we don't read this by starting uh, with Matthew and looking ahead, but we go back to Genesis. We look at that Old Testament story, because uh, Paul doesn't seem to be just pulling a few proof texts out of Isaiah or Malachi or wherever, but he sees what Jesus is doing as part of that larger story. So what does it mean to think of Jesus as king, particularly king of Israel that's fulfilling Israel's longing. What was it that Israel was longing for? They were longing for something uh, that certainly includes forgiveness, uh, but they were also longing for new hearts, uh, this new covenant, uh, restoration, peace, shalom, uh, that kind of thing. And how does Jesus, uh, what he has done, uh, how does his victory and how does God reigning tie into all that? Further, uh, what we often overlook is that Romans is dealing uh, with this problem of Gentiles coming into a Jewish faith. Uh, we are so distant from that 2,000 years later that we forget that, that was a big deal in the first century uh, because this is a Jewish religion and they're following a Jewish Messiah and the Jews are used to being Jews only and now you've got non-Jews coming in. Uh, and so the question is, how do they fit into the people of God? And that, that takes a lot of our focus in chapters 9 through 11. Um, and another fa uh, phrase that shows up at the beginning and end is this phrase, the obedience of faith. So however we understand the response of faith, we've got to hold this intention or, or recognize that faith implies obedience, or as I say here, faith assumes allegiance. Uh, Romans has no concept of a faith that is not a lived faith. Uh, a faith that's belief only is not Pauline faith. Uh, so what Jesus has accomplished, what we experience or participate in through faith is this kind of trust, this allegiance uh, of giving ourselves to God. And then this final word uh, that I want to highlight before I get us into Romans 6 uh, is the language of righteousness. Uh, so some of you who are familiar with Romans may have heard something like uh, verses 16 and 17 is the thesis of Romans. God's righteousness is revealed. 
And that's a great thesis for Romans, but we have to hear God's righteousness in its context. Uh, We too quickly hear God's righteousness being revealed as God making us right with regard to our sins. And then we stop there. But Romans is looking so much bigger than this. Uh, God's righteousness is him, uh, God doing right. So we're going to highlight this language of right. God doing right legally, we might say, with regard to sin. Uh, And so we get this in one side uh, where God's wrath is revealed. He's going to deal with sin uh, as it's meant to be dealt with. And sometimes there's a dark side to this, a shadow side, a a punishment side. But there's also him dealing right with those who are in Christ, who have uh, experienced that forgiveness. So we're we're pretty familiar with the legal side. uh, But what we don't often do is expand that and see... Uh, the what I'll call the holistic sense, the, the larger making things right with us as humans. And we'll get into that more in Romans 6. Um, but one of those places um, is that famous verse, uh, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, sometimes we hear fall short of the glory of God as something like, well, we are imperfect or we've stumbled or we've sinned. But glory of God language seems to be something more like we've fallen short of bearing the image of God. And bearing the image of God seems to be about vocation, about our calling. God has created humans not just so they can try to reside in this perfect state, but so that they might partner with him uh, in caring for creation and relating to one another. And so our falling short is less about uh, the guilt of sin and more about us not being who we were created to be. So part of the good news uh, is that we are more capable of being who we were meant to be. Uh, The cosmic side of this, you just get hints of this throughout, but things like creation is groaning and awaiting its redemption. Um, That something about this victory that that, uh, has been won is God is going to even make right the created world. Uh, So, forgiveness, yes, but bigger than forgiveness. It's vocation. It's us being who we're meant to be. It's even the creation participating in this. Uh, And finally, uh, there's a sense in which God is doing right with regard to his covenant with Abraham and Israel. He's going to Um, give them land and settle them and he's going to let them be a blessing to the nations and they often don't do well at that and so he's showing how he's partnering with Israel and Abraham and their descendants to be a blessing to the nation and then even that promise of land might shift to the new heavens and new earth uh, which we might get to later so that's background Uh, and then I find chapter 6 a helpful um, I don't know um, extra background uh, before we dive into chapter 12. Chapter 12 is going to talk about the life we are called to live. What happens if you go straight to chapter 12 about the life you're called to live, um, it can feel like, oh, well, here's some extra burdens. Oh, now I got to do this stuff too. Or it might feel like if you're operating from this view that it's all about, that the good news is all about getting forgiveness so I go to heaven when I die. What is this whole life live thing? Is that like an optional piece? Is that for super Christians? Why, why do this stuff if I've already got my forgiveness and I'm going to heaven when I die? But if instead uh, we're, we're expanding our notion of God setting things right, uh, then chapter 12 is going to make more sense. And uh, I think Romans 6 will help us with that. So this is almost direct language out of Romans 6, uh, talking about sin, what Jesus has accomplished, Uh, and what the Christian life is about. So notice here, sin is described as that which enslaves, that which leads to death, it shapes desires, it masters, it makes you uh, its instrument. This is how sin is described. So when we think about what sin is, we might think about it, as we typically do, acts that produce guilt, 
We get that later, but here, I'm not saying this is wrong, but the focus uh, on sin uh, here is something like uh, it's a power that enslaves. Here's our primary way of thinking about sin in chapter 6. Guilt, yes, that's part of it, but that's not the whole of Romans. Uh, so much of what Romans is dealing with is, is the human condition. The human condition because of sin uh, is that we lack the willpower to overcome sin's influence. We lack the willpower to overcome sin's influence. Uh, we looked at this in chapter 7. Uh, that which I want to do, I cannot do. The good I want to do, I'm unable to do. That which I don't want to do, I end up doing. Why is that? It's because sin shapes us in ways we don't want to be shaped. One of the ways I try to demonstrate this uh, with my freshmen, but it's kind of applicable to all, all uh, ages and stages, I like to ask them, what is it that shapes your actions and your decisions? Uh, and they'll kind of work out a little list, especially for freshmen. Uh, one of the most common responses is, what other people are going to think of me? And then I follow that up with a second question. What would you like to shape your actions and decisions? I think it's things like love and service and all that stuff. And what I want them to see is often their answer to what shapes their decisions and what they wish shaped their decisions are different. And that difference points to this very thing that, that we aren't fully in control of what shapes us, that we are kind of enslaved uh, by desires uh, and influences uh, that we are not strong enough on our own to deal with. Then chapter 6 talks about what Jesus has accomplished. Uh, and very important in this, uh, as he's looking at, uh, for instance, baptism, being united with him in his death and united with him in his resurrection. Uh, one of the powerful things in Romans 6 is that we see that this isn't just this separate transactional experience. It's not Jesus on the cross over here uh, achieving forgiveness for us over here. That's not period, end of the story. It's rather what Jesus does uh, through his death and resurrection is he wins a victory over sin and death, right? He overcomes sin and death. And when he overcomes sin and death, he doesn't just uh, end there at the cross, but that he joins us. He unites with us because we need something more than forgiveness. We need to be freed from that which enslaves us, freed from that which keeps us from being who we were created to be. So if the human condition is that we lack the willpower to overcome sin's influence, part of this good news is that Jesus overcomes sin, and so might we by being united with him. He's not a distant God. He's not a distant king or a distant Lord. He partners with us. And because he partners with us, uh, our lives are then going to be shaped by his. He is one who was dead to sin, uh, but alive to God. Uh, we no longer live, or we are to uh, less and less live this life that is shaped by sin, and more and more live a life shaped by Christ's likeness. Uh, less and less are we going to be uh, slaves uh, to sin. Less and less is sin going to use us as, as its instruments, and more and more, as we are united with with Christ, we are going to be slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. Not because we are somehow earning our salvation, 
not simply as a response of gratefulness, although gratefulness is certainly a response, but because this is who we were created to be. This was our calling and our vocation. Um, and so we are uh, now freed from that which was preventing us from being who we were made to be. And then uh, this brings in the whole concept of grace uh, that is, um, is really important in Romans. Uh, and once again, just like we hear gospel, not in a 21st century context that's read into it, but as it was understood in Romans and in the first century, so we seek to hear grace according to uh, biblical notions. Grace certainly includes forgiveness. Uh, it includes freedom, as we see here, uh, and empowerment, an ability to be what we were made to be. Uh, so part of the reason Paul's going to say, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Part of the point of grace is that you no longer have to give in uh, to sin. Part of the point of grace is you can be something uh, that uh, you know uh, you are called to be. So then if we expand uh, then or, or consider grace, um, rather than hearing it as uh, this kind of thing that's done to me and that's it and I can't do anything about it, I have no say or anything like that, we hear grace as absolutely initiated by God. We don't make this happen. It is all through uh, what God has accomplished. It is extravagant. This isn't just a small gift, but this is God giving his only son. And because of what a great gift it is, there is no sense in which we'll ever repay it. We can't earn it, and by responding to it, we can't repay it. Uh, it is that kind of grace. Uh, it is also grace, and this is especially shocking in the first century. The first century had concept of grace, but, but one of the things that would have been really, um, I think, profound about Christian grace is it wasn't related, God's grace wasn't related to one's status or your achievements. It wasn't based on, uh, in the first century, status markers would be things like your age, better to be older than younger, uh, your gender, better to be male than female, your education, uh, whether or not you own land, uh, access to power, and so forth. But God looks upon his creatures, and he doesn't care about their status, what other first century people might think about what matters and doesn't. He gives grace to all, and that includes uh, ethnically, Jew and Gentile. And he doesn't base it on what they've accomplished either. However, uh, grace anticipates a response, not as though you're going to earn it, um, but part of receiving the gift is living accordingly. Think about it like eyesight. You've been given the gift of vision, you don't walk around with your eyes closed. Right? That's not how you receive a gift. You open your eyes and you take in beauty. Uh, part of being given the grace of new life is that you live new lives. That's part of grace. Um, that is simply part of the gift um, that comes with grace. So uh, as we expand this notion, let's now get into Romans 12. Josh, I guess we, you could have just done that. We wouldn't have had to have class the last <laughs> I think we were trying to establish that this is accurate the last uh, um, maybe maybe we've gotten there but uh, so Romans 12 George helpfully reminded me that um, we could have also gotten here by uh, going through chapters 9 through 11 which precede this but it's sometimes hard for us as Gentiles to see how that whole conversation about Jew and Gentile coming together follows but the idea is something like uh, help me get this right, George. But as Jew and Gentile come together into one new people, um, they have a calling to be something like the new Israel, the new priestly community 
And so it's not surprising in chapter 12, part of being a priestly community is offering appropriate sacrifices. Um, okay, so chapter 12, here's a call to respond to grace, to respond to new life, to no longer let sin have mastery over us, to become who we were created to be. Okay, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we give our bodies, these uh, once broken, well, they're still kind of broken, sin-controlled vessels, but now they've been united with Christ. Uh, They are awaiting their full redemption at the resurrection. We're not looking to shed our earthly bodies and fly off as spirits, but our bodies are even being renewed. And even that kind of sin uh, that is um, so entrenched within them is being broken and overcome. So what else is our proper response but to give those bodies back to the one who is restoring them? For, For Paul, there seems to be two things you can do with your body. You can give it to sin to be its instrument, or you can give it to God to be its instrument. There's not a middle ground here. Uh, And so why would you give it to the one that produces death instead of the one that brings life? And we're not just thinking life in the age to come, but life now. As we've learned from Paul, what did those things do but bring you shame that you used to give yourself to? Uh, This is your spiritual act uh, or true and proper worship there at the end of uh, verse 1. The language of worship can mean service, and I think uh, we probably are aware of this now, but uh, we're learning to see worship as not something that happens, well, you know, Sunday or Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday evening if you're particularly good, um, but, but rather as this ongoing, daily, whole life submission to God um, that... Um, that echoes Jesus' words, not my will, but your be done. Or that daily prayer that so many Christians pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is our act of service and worship, ongoing, daily, whole life worship. And as then he explains what that looks like uh, in the rest of the chapter, uh, we start in verse 2. I think it's, it's, it's uh, kind of giving examples of, of what that looks like to give your life as worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So a few things to note here in verse two. I appreciate, maybe because I'm a teacher, the emphasis on mind. It matters how we think. We bring our minds fully into the acts of discipleship and worship. There is no Christian sense of checking your mind at the door and it's all about this kind of simplistic belief and you're, not, you're too afraid to ask difficult questions or um, you don't uh, actually dig into scripture or something like that. Our minds are part of worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The mind is an, uh, we're gonna get language of armor later. The mind is a weapon in this uh, spiritual battle. So by the renewing of your mind, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Uh, What he's saying, I think there, not conforming to the world is not um, just blindly uh, accepting the world's value system. Um, This guy, uh, David Foster Wallace, who's an author, uh, he's agnostic. He wrote this uh, great um, commencement speech. Um, And one of the ways, he opens it up by talking about two young fish are swimming in the water and a, um, an older fish comes along, swims by, and says, hey boys, how's the water? 
And it swims past, and the two fish keep swimming along, and finally one of the young fish turns to the other and says, I'll, I'll Christianize the language here, what the heck's water? Uh, and David Foster Wallace's point is, we uh, so often live and breathe in an environment that we are completely unaware of. And we do this um, in our cultural system. There are values um, and um, things that, that, that shape our hearts and our desires uh, that are so, so saturating our culture that we don't even realize we are swimming in that water. Uh, and so part of renewing our minds is learning to see with the eyes of Christ, learning to recognize what is truth within that value system. Uh, as I already mentioned, in the first century value system, um, you would have things like you, you would judge people based on their age, gender, uh, wealth, education, access to land, uh, purity, ethnicity. That was just the water they swam in. But Jesus comes along and he meets with people that he's not supposed to meet with. Uh, he reaches out to the lepers and the unclean and the untouchables. And what he's doing is showing uh, that there is a different value system from God's perspective. Um, what the world thinks matters isn't necessarily what God thinks matters. And so part of your renewing your mind, this is why we dig into Scripture, not because there's a checklist up there and God says, well, you've made it through the Bible three times in your life, you're in. Uh, but rather we dig into Scripture and we use our minds because it helps us see the world as God sees it. And it helps us then um, reveal um, the, the falseness uh, in the culture. It helps us recognize the water that we're swimming in so that we don't simply default into that. And so we can look at the first century and think, uh, how could they have ever thought that? How could they have ever devalued humans the way they devalued humans based on their gender or their, their wealth or um, their sickness or something like that? That seems atrocious to us. Uh, but we have our own kinds of uh, cultural uh, practices and norms. Think about what our culture teaches us to love. One of the ways to, to get at this, to kind of pull back the curtain, uh, is we think about what does our culture suggest is the good life? And when you recognize just what a, um, a default position is the good life, according to our culture, then you're starting to realize, oh, this isn't uh, inherently right and true. Uh, we, are, we are shaped to believe this. And we have to use the renewing of our minds or practice the renewing of our minds to ask, what part of this is true and what part of it is false? Uh, what part of the pursuit of happiness is maybe not what we're called to? Uh, what is it about the good life that's maybe not good from God's perspective? Uh, and instead, what might we pour ourselves into? Again, not because we've got to make God happy with us or something like that, but because we realize that when we buy into a lie, we are being used as instruments for sin, and we are, we are um, becoming less than we were created to be. We've, I think we move beyond, because of what Christ has done, this worry about, uh, I feel guilty if I do this, and more to, I want to be free to pursue life as it's meant to be lived. I want to break away uh, from that which is uh, less than healthy for me. How do we do this? Uh, that's a little bit harder. Uh, renewing minds, notice it's linked to bodies. I think maybe implied in here, as we learn from Christian tradition, is that we have to adapt, adopt new habits and practices. Uh, if we're going to see things differently, if we're going to participate in life differently. Uh, so this is where I think some of the spiritual disciplines come in. Why do we spend time in prayer? I think we spend time in prayer, not uh, so we can show God that we're good Christians, but 
Uh, just as if you've seen a couple who've been together a while, they start picking up each other's mannerisms and habits. Uh, so we spend time with Christ and we start becoming like Christ. Uh, we start seeing as Christ sees, we start living as Christ sees, we start loving as Christ sees. So at the end of chapter uh, 13, you get this language of being clothed with Christ. We put ourselves in a position to put on Christ. It's not easy, it's difficult, it's, uh, it's a slow, grinding process sometimes, but it is also, if we are um, faithful to Scripture, we also believe it's where life is found. Uh, where else will we go? but to Christ to find life. Okay, verse 3. I'll, don't worry, I'll pick up the pace. Uh, but, but this stuff, this is the foundational stuff that I think makes sense. I know, I'm making you. Don't worry. Um, that's, that's the meat of chapter 12 to me. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So part of living out this is recognizing who you are uh, and who others are. So this isn't, I'm a terrible person, everybody's better than me, but it's instead, I know through Christ that I am a beloved child of God. And as I accept that, I accept that the other part of the body of Christ, they're all beloved children of God. I'm not better, I'm not worse. I am beloved and you are beloved. And so we live accordingly uh, as we appreciate one another and what here we have, what they bring to the table. Verse 4, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ the many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Notice um, that part of being an instrument of God, part of offering ourselves in worship, is being part of a body. Uh, there is no me alone kind of Christianity. There is this expectation that we need uh, one another in this. Uh, so in Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. And if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, to do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There are several of these gift lists. Paul is not, um, he's not exhaustive in these, but he basically seems to be saying, what you're gifted at, do it. Uh, and nor is it the sense in which he's saying, you know, only some of you have to serve. It's rather if you have a special gift, you especially pour yourself into that. Or only some of you are called to give. No, we're all called to give, but some are called to even give more. Uh, N.T. Wright has a helpful thing there on prophecy. Um, at the end of verse 6, prophesy in accordance with not your faith. It should be the faith. Um, and he says, and this is maybe especially helpful for us in churches of Christ who are beginning to get a sense that the Spirit is still alive and active. Sometimes what happens is you kind of run too far and are like, well, everything then must be, you know, the Spirit is, is, um, is kind of the, uh, the end all of the conversation. I feel inspired by the Spirit to say this, therefore you can't say anything against it. That is not prophesying in accordance with the faith. It's instead, if you feel inspired, uh, then you have, a, um, you have a duty to think about how this does or doesn't align with the faith. And if it doesn't align with the faith revealed in Scripture, uh, then maybe you've got your signals mixed up a little bit. Um, but um, so this isn't uh, you're the new prophet, you are speaking canonical uh, words here. Uh, but it's often more about encouragement, speaking into a situation, um, so that we don't get these uh, figures who um, think they have more authority than they ought to, uh, which I think is a helpful corrective. So prophecy, yes. Um, uh, an unhealthy authority from it? No. Verse 9. 
Uh, love must be sincere. The Greek here is an upokritos, unhypocritical. I like that. Uh, let your love be unhypocritical. Uh, as we as we get into scripture, as we get into this description, unhypocritical love seems to get described in what follows. Often what we see is that love is not primarily about emotion, it's about action. So this isn't uh, drum up some good feelings about others because you know some of us are like me and you're really introverted and you only got good feelings for so many people. Um, but you can still love even if you only got good feelings for so many people because uh, that doesn't make it hypocritical. Uh, sincere love is, I think, loving without expectation that you're going to get something back from it. Or uh, sincere love is loving without, how's this going to make me look? That's the lack of sincerity. It's not, do your emotions line up with your actions so much. Um, it's more about motive, I believe. Um, if we keep going, verse 10, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Uh, so you have this, they're living in this renewed uh, not conforming to the world. And then honor shame society like that, you don't honor the one below you because that brings shame on you. Instead, what you seek to do is honor yourself, even at the cost of others. But when you're living in Christ, when you recognize the grace that's been done to you not related to status or achievement, you don't live according to that standard. Instead, uh, you play or you operate differently. And this is what Jesus does, right? He washes the feet. Uh, we honor those, or they are called to honor those who might seem below them even if that made them seem like social misfits. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. This is, I think, better translated. That second line, instead of keep your spiritual fervor, uh, the Greek can be translated, be set on fire by the Spirit. The language of keep your spiritual fervor sounds like you got to keep a spiritual high all the time, which is impossible to stay on that mountaintop. You just can't do that. Uh, that Christian tradition is that we go through um, valleys and peaks. But be set on fire by the Spirit seems like it's saying, if you're going to live this out, you need to be united with Christ. You need to allow the Spirit of Christ to shape you and work, you, work in you. This doesn't happen by default. God's not going to manipulate you into this. But you allow Him uh, to uh, move you and shape you into this new reality. Um, so I think that's a helpful corrective rather than saying always feel on fire. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Uh, absolutely giving and generosity uh, was so fundamental to the early church. Uh, and we have to recognize uh, that should be fundamental uh, for us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Verse 15 reminds us that real empathy is difficult, but it's expected of us. Um, rather than giving quick, easy answers to people who are going through difficult times, sometimes we have to suffer alongside them. Um, so I think it's okay, Lauren, if I share this. Uh, Lauren has had two miscarriages. The first one I went for the quick fix. I didn't empathize, did not do well. It was a bad, uh, bad experience, I think, for her and later for me. Um, the second time, though, I learned, uh, and it's a lot harder to empathize. It's a lot harder to sit with somebody in their suffering when all you want to do is fix it. You want to give them a quick answer, or this must be God's will, or something like, God works all things for good, blah, blah, blah. Because we're not willing to be kind of vulnerable and sit there in someone's pain. But Christ-like love is joining people sometimes in their pain uh, without uh, going to that quick fix, because the quick fix is not about helping them. It's about keeping ourselves uh, from getting too vulnerable uh, and empathizing too much. 
Um, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is all pretty straightforward. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Notice that language, as far as it is possible. I think our current Christian climate is to uh, often seek peace, uh, period, um, even sometimes at the cost of, um, of, uh, of our convictions. Um, really, we've got kind of two moves. One is don't care about peace. You're all about kind of throwing your convictions on people. And the other is, no, we don't want to go that way, so tolerance is the great virtue. Uh, the Christian way should uh, find some way of, of having peace while at the same time being faithful to their conviction. Those, those hard middle grounds is so often where we're called to. Um, and uh, I think it is, it is vital, though, as part of our witness uh, to Christ. Uh, 19, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written in his mind to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, so... The idea isn't that we pretend like evil isn't evil. We say, oh, you know, I guess it wasn't that bad, or this atrocity maybe is not bad. We're not going to do anything about it. Rather, we call evil evil. We recognize bad as bad, but we also recognize that God can deal with it. Um, on, a, on a small level, I try to get my kids when something is done, um, and one of them says, will you forgive me, to say not, it's okay, which is kind of like a way of saying no wrong was done, but rather I forgive you. One acknowledges a wrong done, uh, the other doesn't. We acknowledge wrong, we acknowledge evil and brokenness, but we also uh, believe that God will deal with most of it. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That might be a reference to shame. It might be picking up on uh, an Egyptian proverb around the time that this proverb was written that has to do with repentance. Um, either way, our response is the Christ response. Um, what Christ did is what we do because we are being clothed with Christ in this new way of life. And this is summarized nicely in verse 21. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This seems to be our primary calling as we follow Christ. So I have about 10 minutes in chapter 13, but to summarize this, what Christ did for us, we as the church are to do for others. And we can do so more and more if we will allow Christ's spirit to reign in us. As we partner with him to put to death the old sinful life and bring to life the new life in Christ. By the renewing of our minds, by offering our bodies to God through new habits and practices. All right, 10 minutes in chapter 13, which is good because it's talking about uh, being subject to the state and state drawing the sword and that's going to be a whole problem and so I can <laughs> I can uh, limit it okay chapter 13 1 through 5 let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established the authorities that exist have been established by God I'm sorry I read fast I've been listening to audiobooks at like two times speed and Lauren keeps saying when you read to the children you're reading like your audiobooks and uh, so I apologize uh, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. 
They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishments, but also as a matter of conscience. In context, as we're following up from chapter 12, uh, we've just got this um, teaching about don't retaliate, don't repay evil for evil. So when we turn to verse 13, uh, part of the conversation about being subject to governing authorities might be uh, going along with that teaching of not taking vengeance into your own hands. You allow uh, the authorities their proper role as God's servants uh, to do that. Um, as N.T. Wright says, some government is always necessary in a world where evil flourishes if left unchecked. Paul is writing this when Nero is emperor. This isn't a particularly good government leader. It's almost shocking that he says this. Uh, but what we pick up from elsewhere in scripture, this is why we can't proof text. If you proof text this, pull chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 out of context, what you hear is something like Christians should be in blind sub, you know, subjection to whatever ruling authority there is. But when you read it in the larger canon, when you read it in context, you realize that's not what he's saying. It's mostly about uh, taking vengeance, it seems to be. Notice that Peter and John, when they're told to be quiet back in Acts, they say no. When Paul is told he's going to be let go, I forget where he's at, he says, oh no, you hit a Roman citizen. You're going to be escorting me out of here. It's not this complete subjection with no say and no um, response from a canonical perspective. Um, as uh, Karl Barth, a uh, great theologian, says, blind subjection, we can safely say, is entirely unknown uh, in the Bible. I think, uh, one, as I've already said, it's about the context of vengeance. Two, when you look at um, the reasons that the authority might unsheathe the sword, uh, it often seems to be those kind of crimes or activities that Christians have no business participating in anyway. So I don't think he's saying whatever the government says you get on board with, but rather um, often uh, the kinds of things that you're not supposed to be a part of, um, that Christians shouldn't be doing anyway, uh, the things that the government says no to, they're no for Christians as well. Your freedom in Christ doesn't mean you're freed from all rule and authority. Um, so again, not blind subjection, uh, something more going on here. Now this uh, verse four, uh, rulers don't bear the sword for no reason, uh, brings up um, the idea of Christians in, um, involved in war and violence. And so let's, let's spend about five minutes on that. Um, notice, notice what might seem to be a tension. Chapter 12, 21, overcome evil with good. Chapter 13, 4, rulers bearing the sword as God's servant. Uh, as I see this, it seems to me that as Paul is writing in the first century context, he's not writing to 21st century Americans, um, he is focusing on the church's role uh, as here, overcoming the evil with good, and the role of the pagan authorities, uh, which to me is something like restraining evil with the sword at times. So overcome evil with good for the church, pagan authorities, uh, their role is to restrain evil. The question comes in, though, is there a place for the church, for people in the church, to participate with the work of the governing authorities uh, in restraining evil in that way? Or should the church only be about um, overcoming evil with good? And so they leave the, uh, the sword, uh, they leave uh, coercion uh, to, um, to governments, and churches aren't to participate in that. 
maybe a case study for this, and this is only going to be brief, but I want to give you two sides of, of um, how we think about Christians in military service. Uh, so, uh, for some, uh, the overcome the evil with good um, is the, not only the default position, but the only position for the church. There is no role for the church in military. And this is uh, especially represented in uh, the first three centuries of Christian writing outside of Scripture. So people like uh, Tertullian, uh, Origen, um, some other guy's name I can't pronounce, um, uh, they forbid Christians in military service for two reasons. One, because of how much the military, uh, the Roman military was tied to idolatry. You couldn't really participate in the Roman military without um, being a part of the uh, idolatry system. Sure, you could worship Jesus alongside, but it's got to be in combination with worshiping uh, the other gods. Uh, but for others, um, the other problem was that some Christians, and this is the, seems to be the largest witness of the first three centuries, is that killing is wrong, period. That Christians have no place uh, in killing another. Killing itself is banned, uh, says Lactantius. Uh, killing a human being is always wrong. Uh, Tertullian said the Lord, by taking away Peter's sword, disarmed every soldier. Um, Origen, um, he writes uh, a lengthy treatise, uh, Christians are not to participate in war even if they seem to be uh, just wars. So one way uh, that Christians have understood, uh, for instance, these verses is to say, no, Christians can't participate in this. They are about overcoming evil with good. Restraining evil, that is for those outside of the church. Um, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote, a, um, wrote an essay, Why I'm Not a Pacifist, uh, Why He Believes That Just War Is Okay. And uh, the way that C.S. Lewis um, uh, deals with this is kind of bringing it together. He says, yes, there are places where Christians can join uh, with the government in this. And he says his reasoning behind this. Uh, he looks at the prohibition uh, for instance, in Matthew 5, turn the other cheek that Jesus says. And he says, we don't apply the Sermon on the Mount consistently. Um, we recognize that if a, if a child hits a parent, the parent's not going to turn the other cheek and let them become little monsters. Or if a madman is running loose, a Christian has a right to, uh, to stop them. Um, or elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, when it says, give to anyone who asks of you, we recognize that we don't actually give to everyone who asks of us. There is an expectation of wisdom and discernment in here. And C.S. Lewis says, um, when we look at the first century context, it's mostly about personal retaliation, which we are not to be involved in. We don't involve ourselves in personal retaliation. This is not about joining the government and appropriate uh, restraining of evil. He says, Jesus and John the Baptist both uh, had commendable words to a centurion with no other qualifying comments about them no longer uh, in that role. Moreover, he says, when we look at Christian tradition beyond the first three centuries, Catholic, Anglican, very much uh, in the Protestant tradition, there are times when war is justified. So to bring this together, rather than um, solving this problem of, are we only about overcoming evil with good, or can we partner in restraining evil in this way? Um, one author has said, regardless of where you fall on this, the Christian view is that our primary responsibility is overcoming evil with good that we, we have got to uh, be wary of quickly joining uh, with, the, um, with the sword and with violence as a means to solve problems. That regardless of where you stand as a Christian, uh, you either see violence as not an option or as a last option. 
Um, and what that means is that uh, wherever you fall in this, Christians are often in a different category than the rest of the world. So rather than focusing on our differences in this, uh, we focus on the sense uh, that we are called uh, to largely um, embody Christ in all our actions and all our practices. And the only difference is that the just warrior thinks that there are places uh, where uh, violence might be uh, appropriate. Um, hold on a second. I got, I got like two minutes. Please give me two minutes to finish. You don't, do you? Uh, okay. I know. This guy. All right, let me get through this, and then we can talk after, okay? I know you always want to talk after. Yes, because i got to get through. Okay. All right, let me go to verse 11. 